Elrod, what's up? Hey, Doug. How you doing? Good. So, real quick take. Fundraising numbers. We've started to see uh, a bunch of the candidates release them this week. What are your What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think I'm not surprised, frankly, by anything except really Bernie Sanders having a very strong uh, Q1, given the fact that he got in the race midway through the quarter. Um, I thought Kamala's numbers were right where I thought they would be. Um, I thought Beto could have done a little bit better, frankly. A lot of people were very impressed. He had a a very good first 24 hours, but I think he, you know, given the fact that he raised gazillions of dollars running for the Texas Senate, I think he probably could have done a little bit better. Um, But all these guys have been impressive, and it's going to be interesting. I'm more intrigued to see what Elizabeth Warren comes out with, what Amy Klobuchar comes out with. With, with some of these second-tier candidates, kind of what their numbers look like. Mayor Pete came in with uh, about $7 million. That was, that was pretty impressive. impressive. Especially yep. given that he has a very small campaign apparatus. Right, right. So, welcome, folks. I'm Doug Thornell. I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, and this is The Electables. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Ron Klain, who is one of the top Democratic strategists, thinkers, um, in the party that we have had. He is currently the executive vice president and general counsel at Revolution. And throughout his career, he has served as the vice, has uh, chief of staff to Vice President Biden, to uh, Vice President Gore. He was a senior aide to President Obama, a chief of staff to Janet Reno. Uh, he worked on the, um, the, the chief counsel to the Judiciary Committee. He was the Obola czar. <laughs> he uh, he was also leading the recount in 2000 uh, for Vice President Gore. He's he's literally done it all in politics. He's also one of the most sought after debate prep coaches in the business and has prepped uh, just about everyone who's run for president uh, on the Democratic side over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years. Ron, did you prep Bernie Sanders? In 2016? I, I did not. I prepped Hillary Clinton That's in 2016. <laughs> and she won those I'm kidding. Debates, I'm think, kidding. Right? She, she did. She did very well. Yes, she did. She did. Very She's well. a very good debater. Yeah. Ron, thank you for joining us on The Electables today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, Ron, we're so happy you're here. Um, Ron and I worked together very closely on Hillary's campaign, even though you weren't an actual staffer, but you were very helpful and, and pretty much, you know, around for all the big moments and all the crises and whatnot. So, Ron, how did you get your start in politics? Tell us how you got started. You know, it's funny. We're actually kind of celebrating yesterday, the 51st anniversary of a big day in my life. Um, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, in 1968, when I was seven years old, Robert F. Kennedy was campaigning for president. And the Indiana primary was a critical battle in the 1968 presidential campaign. He came to Indiana many times on one of those trips to Indiana. His signature event was kind of like an early version of a town hall event where he did it with different interest groups. He decided to do a town hall event with small business people and some advanced person picked my dad's plumbing supply house as the site for this event. Mm -hmm. And so on a day in March of 1968, I met Robert F. Kennedy when he did an event at my father's business. Now, uh, and I was intrigued and mesmerized by this uh, candidate. Uh, A month later, on April 4th, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it happened that Senator Kennedy was back in Indianapolis that night and gave this very emotional speech in a park in Indianapolis. I've now been a memorial to this speech where he urged nonviolence in response to Dr. King's death. All over America, most cities burned. Not Indianapolis that night. My father's business is one of the businesses that would have burned had there been rioting in Indianapolis. And so that spring left me really with a sense of the power and the possibility of politics, the ability of politicians to make a difference, the ability of words to change history. 
And ever since then, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Wow, that's an amazing story. Um, So tell us a little bit about Revolution and the work that you do. We're actually at Revolution right now. Tell us about the work you do here. So we're an investment firm. We were founded in 2005 by uh, Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, and Ted Leonsis, who was another senior executive at AOL and also now owns the uh, Mm -hmm. major sports teams here in Washington, D.C. And we invest in companies all over the country, but particularly companies outside of the peak areas of Silicon Valley in New York. We have what we call the rise of the rest strategy. We find promising companies in places like Indianapolis and Columbus and Austin, Louisville, Memphis, Birmingham, and investing companies there. Uh, 80% of the venture capital in America goes to three places, Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. Mm -hmm. The rest of the country splits 20% of the venture capital. And we're trying to reverse that and try to help grow businesses, grow startups in the rest of the country. Uh, Ron, who are some of the companies that uh, that you guys invest in? So um, perhaps some of the best known companies uh, that we invest in, uh, Sweetgreen, the the um, love Sweetgreen, the salad chain. Yes, Kava Me also, too. Kava also in the. They've got uh, a new Harvest Bowl. Fast, that I fast casual space. Well, it looks turning into a big commercial here. <laughs> um, we uh, we are also investors in um, uh, uh, Shinola, uh, the, actually the parent company Bedrock, the folks in Detroit who make uh, watches here in the United States, who employ and retrain auto workers. Uh, in manufacturing uh, high-quality manufactured goods like auto, auto like watches and bicycles, based in 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 Detroit, we're in about 130 companies around the country, and uh, that number grows every day. So I wanted to take uh, I wanted you to take us back to 2000. Yeah, and that wonderful <laughs> campaign. I talk yeah. about changing the course of history. I think we all yeah. worked on that campaign in some capacity. Um, you played a leading role, obviously, in the Florida recount. And I would love for you to take us back to those, what was it, 31 days? 36 days. 36 days. 36 days, yeah. It obviously was, you know, there was a movie made about it um, a little bit later called Recount. But I'd love to get your, uh, your, you know, your thoughts on that whole period of time. You know, it's funny. Um, you work in campaigns and the one thing you know about a campaign is you work, you work so hard, you put your heart and soul in it. And, and election day comes and, you know, the day after election day, you can sleep in and it's finally over and, mm-hmm. you know, it's finally behind you. And obviously this was not that case at all. On election night, um, the state of Florida, which was the decisive state in the Electoral College, was first called for Vice President Gore, then called for Governor Bush and then and then uncalled by some news organizations and left too close to to count. And so I had been running the rapid response operation for the Gore campaign in Nashville. I was a lawyer. Um, that seemed like the right mix of skills. So uh, Vice President Gore asked me to lead a team down to Tallahassee the morning uh, after Election Day. And, uh, you know, over the course of the next 36 days, we filed 33 different lawsuits and uh, litigated in state courts and federal courts and the Supreme Court twice in uh, what was a very, very complicated process to try to get a very, very simple thing done, which was to make sure that every vote was cast that was cast was counted and that the person who got the most votes would win. And unfortunately, we didn't get that done. Not all the votes were counted. Um, the recount was terminated uh, by a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, George W. Bush became president. You were a clerk to Justice Byron White on the Supreme Court, so obviously you know the history of the court very well. If you think of some of the past decisions by the court, Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott, where do you rank the Bush v. Gore decision in terms of how just terrible it was? Well, I think it's one of the the handful of worst decisions by the Supreme Court. 
And, and why is that? Well, because first of all, um, the court itself recognized the illegitimacy of its decision. They did the extraordinary thing of saying in the decision that this case wasn't a precedent for future cases. The court never says that was basically like, hey, we picked a winner, but you can't ever say this case was decided ever again, which is a big tell that they, um, they knew what they were doing was wrong. Uh, it was also an institutional travesty to let the court go on a five to four decision to pick a president with all five of the justices appointed by Republican presidents on one side. So, you know, I think overall it really damaged the court's credibility. I think the decision was legally wrong, doesn't hold up over time. Um, And I think in some ways started off uh, a a kind of nasty partisanship that we're still dealing with today. I think in, in, in my view is Bush v. Gore is kind of the original sin of how we got to a lot of our politics today. That's a fascinating analysis, Ron. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your job as the Ebola czar in the White House. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I feel like we don't hear a lot about Ebola anymore. I mean, is that because you came in and, and basically like saved the, killed, saved the day for the entire world? Well, it has a lot less. To, I'm giving you all the credit for I the fact that, that. The Ebola is not a big yeah, thing anymore. Yeah. So look, it has a lot less to do with me and a lot more to do with a lot of very brave and heroic people who went to West Africa to fight the fight. But when President Obama asked me to take over the U.S. response in October of 2014, we were in the midst of far and away the worst Ebola outbreak in world history, a thousand cases a week. The worst outbreak before that, it had less than 500 cases over the entire span of it. So it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. President Obama made a series of really courageous and hard decisions to uh, deploy U.S. troops to fight a disease for the first time ever in our history. We sent 3,000 troops from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, to do the logistics and support for the response in West Africa and Operation United Assistance. We sent over 10,000 U.S. civilians uh, to help uh, staff various efforts to fight the disease in West Africa. And Congress appropriated $6 billion very quickly in four weeks for our efforts to be prepared for cases that might arrive here and to help fight the disease overseas. You know, in the end, credit for snuffing out that outbreak of Ebola, that epidemic of Ebola, belongs to the people of West Africa themselves. They made important changes in the way they dealt with burial practices and the way in which they interacted with others in their community, in the way in which they treated those with Ebola. And ultimately, over the course of six months, we were able to go from 1,000 cases a week to fewer than 10, and we were able to deal with the possibility of any cases here. That epidemic ultimately ended completely in uh, the spring of 2015. But sadly, now we have another epidemic raging in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the central part of Africa, Uh, more than 1,000 cases, still much smaller than the 2014 case, but still the second largest epidemic in history. And uh, the combination of uh, a lack of the similar kind of response from the Trump administration Mm -hmm. uh, and and local violence and all kinds of things are are, uh, making it harder to get that under control. And it's going to go on for quite a while now. And when you when you worked with Congress to secure this funding um, in 2014, was that a bipartisan effort from Democrats and Republicans? It was a bipartisan effort. It, it passed with overwhelming support from both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and, uh, and that's the way it should be. Look, disease isn't a partisan issue. Right. Viruses don't ask your political party affiliation before they infect you. Right. You know, and and even the Ebola thing itself was really interesting. Um, The two most high-profile Americans who got Ebola, who we treated here in the United States, and both of whom recovered, one was Dr. Kent Brantley. He was a 
religious missionary who worked for Franklin Graham Samaritan's Purse, very conservative person from a very conservative group who got Ebola. We airlifted it home. We treated him. And then Dr. Craig Spencer, who worked for Doctors Without Borders, very progressive person, lives in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, this disease didn't ask about anyone's ideology or partisan affiliation when it struck them. And we help people, um, and and we had bipartisan support to fight a robust effort against the disease in West Africa, and also to do more to prepare for the risk of infectious diseases here in the U.S. Wow. Um, I wanted to shift to 2020 and uh, get your thoughts on the current field. Well, you know, as you said, Doug, at the outset, I worked for Vice President Biden, not only as vice president, but earlier in my career as chief counsel of the Judiciary Committee when he was chairman of the committee. I worked on both of his presidential campaigns in 1988 and in 2008. And so if he just chooses to get in the race, I'm going to be for uh, Joe Biden all the way. And I think he'd be a great candidate. I think he'll be, a, if he gets in, I think he'll run and win and be a great president. But I think if for some reason he chooses not to get in, I think we do have a lot of other really good candidates in the in the field, in the race. I think it's going to be a very, very uh, hard fought uh, challenge. I think, um, uh, you know, there's 15, 16 candidates. There's more every single day. And, um, you know, I think that uh, the Democrats are going to have a, a, a lot of choices, a lot of different kind of choices. Uh, but as I said, I'm, I, I, I really hope uh, the vice president chooses to get in. And if he does, uh, he's, he's my candidate. And Ron, could you tell us, because you do know Vice President Biden very well. Um, you served as his chief of staff in the White House, as we just mentioned. Tell us a little bit about him and what kind of person is he like? Yeah, you know, he, uh, what you see is what you get. I mean, I think um, anyone who's worked with him, worked around him, knows that the, the, the friendly, uh, open, caring person that you see in public is what he's like behind the scenes. It's what he's like with his staff. It's what he's like with the people who he encounters on the campaign trail or traveling the country. And, um, you know, it's one reason why I think um, a record number of Democratic candidates asked him to come in, campaign for that, him to campaign for them in 2018. He traveled all over the country, campaigned for so many people uh, running for the House and Senate and state offices. Um, he's really engaging. He's um, really personable and, you know, just very, very, very outgoing. It was it was always a treat to work in the White House with him and President Obama because the two were very, very, very different people who became very, very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. And one of those kind of opposite attracts kind of thing. President Obama is very introverted. Vice President Biden is very extroverted. President Obama really wants to get right to the point. Vice President Biden loves a good story. Uh, you know, President Obama is <laughs> very analytical. Vice President Biden really uh, feels it from the heart. And um, uh, and so I think when you put the two of them together, it was a fantastic team. They really mm-hmm. respected each other. They worked with each other with a great deal of mutual respect and friendship and admiration. Uh, and I think that together they serve this country extremely well for eight years. Yeah, I remember when Vice President Biden endorsed Hillary in Scranton. And, but I think we had to reschedule that event a couple times because Trump blew up the news cycle yeah. and we realized we're never... <laughs> shocking. Well, yeah, shocking, right? Yeah. Like we're never going to get airtime, proper airtime out of this out of this um, endorsement. So, <laughs> um, so, okay, we talked about Vice President Biden. Obviously, if he gets in the race, you are with him. But... Talk to us, Ron, given the fact that you've been working in politics for so long. Who do you think, and we don't have to even, you know, just label it as one person, but who are a couple folks who you think could really 
stand up against Trump and defeat him in a general election. I have my own I have my, my own thoughts, but I want to hear I want to hear yours. Well, look, I again, Vice President Biden's obviously at the top of my list mm-hmm. for that. I, I think you know, the race in 2020, as with all incumbent races, winds up being a lot about the incumbent himself. And um uh, and President Trump will define the race. Um, and um, I think that he, I think it's wrong to underestimate him. I think it's wrong to overestimate him. He is not a genius who has an elaborate plan that's all going according to plan, and it's just all like working out exactly like he, he wanted it to. I think people who see that overestimate him. But I think uh, it's also wrong to underestimate him. Uh, he has very, very strong support. And that support is very, very intense. Uh, this past fall, I worked um, on campaigns of two friends of mine, uh, Rich Cordray, who was a longtime friend, ran for governor of Ohio, and mm-hmm. Joe Donnelly from my home state of Indiana running for Senate. In those states, what you saw was uh, both campaigns really outperformed goals on turning out their votes and getting their base out and so on and so forth. But Trump came into both those states and rallied their voters and, you know, just raised turnout among the red parts of the state. So places like Ohio and Indiana and and swamped both Cordray and Donnelly at the polls with his voters. Right. So, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, anyone going into 2020 needs to understand they're up against an incumbent president who has steadfast support and who is going to stop at nothing to get reelected. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Ron, because in 2016, we on Hillary's campaign took Trump very seriously. There's no question that we, um, I mean, we we treated him like a top-tier challenger because he was. Um, I think a lot of people in the media and a lot of pundits out there didn't quite see it the same way, and I think that was a dynamic that played against us. And I think if, if, if that continues this time around, it could also be something that whomever the nominee is has to contend with because when you look at Trump's poll numbers, they are, they're not great, but he does have that very intense support among his base and they will do anything for him. I mean, they will literally do anything for him. So to grapple with that and try to figure out how to take on that dynamic is, um, is challenging. And like you also said, Ron, there's no, it's not like he has some grand plan in place, right? I mean, he's just got his gut instincts, which for better, for worse, have carried him pretty far at this point. Do you think it needs to be a referendum on Trump? I mean, all elections in some ways are on incumbents, but do we want to make this about Trump or do we want to make this about the Democratic vision? Well, look, I think we're going to try to make it about the Democratic vision. And that's what we should try to do. And we have to give people an alternative and they have to be um, comfortable with the alternative. And, and, you know, in some ways it reminds me a little bit in a very less extreme way of the race in 1992 when I worked for President Clinton. And, you know, the first choice voters made was whether or not they were going to keep George Bush as president. That was their first choice. And they uh, decided generally no. But then they looked at this challenger and they're like, well, is this Bill Clinton guy? He's been governor of Arkansas. Like, is he really up for it? He's young. He, you know, whatever the issues were with, with President Clinton. And, they, and, and so you need both. You need to, first of all, get voters to agree that it's time to get rid of the incumbent. And then they have to believe that what you're putting up instead of the incumbent is a better choice, a better way, a better vision, a better candidate. And so, you know, you're, you're going to need both. But I think there's no getting around the fact that the first choice voters make is to keep or to fire the president of the United States. You are the debate guru within the party. Um, you've trained pretty much, well, you mentioned several mem- mem- men just now and then uh, a number of other candidates. Uh, but 
I'm curious, who was the toughest person to prepare against or prepare for? Well, I think there's no question the toughest challenge was to prepare Secretary Clinton to debate against Donald Trump um, because he he is so outrageous. He was willing to kind of say or do anything. Uh, and, you know, particularly we had this problem, which was he he just lied and and lied a lot. And and so it was a, it was a, could, she could have devoted her entire time to simply correcting all his lies. And if she had done that, she wouldn't have gotten much of a message out. All people would have known was like she was running to be editor in chief of PolitiFact or something like that. Like you can't you can't devote all your debate time to just uh, fixing his lies. On the other hand, you can't just let the lies stand. You can't just let them go unanswered. And so I think dealing with that was a real challenge. She was a fantastic debater. I mean. I think people forget this now. Obviously, everyone's disappointed with the outcome. But, um, you know, we, we went into the first debate with the race basically tied. At the end of the third debate, uh, she was eight or nine points ahead in the polls. Yep. Um, independent observers like Ezra Klein at Vox and Nate Silver at 538 said it was the most dominating performance any candidate's ever given in presidential debates. And she deserves the credit for that. She uh, worked super hard to get ready. She went up against him. And um, and really um, took him on and took him down. And um, I think um, uh, I think her performance in those debates is a model. First of all, I think it's a model for any candidate going up against Donald Trump. It's a model for women candidates. So I think um, always wonder how you can be tough in a debate and not turn voters off. I think she did a superb job of walking that very, very thin line very effectively. Do you think debates matter anymore? I mean, you just pointed out that Hillary Clinton wiped the floor with Donald Trump and she lost. Um, And I'm just curious. There have been other examples. John Kerry did that against George Bush in 2004. He lost. Look, debates matter more than any other single thing, but they don't matter everything. It's a you know, it's a it's a two year campaign that each side sends a billion dollars on. Debates are a big part of that, but they they may not be the the last and decisive part. I I do think that in the case of 2016, those debates took us from an even race to Secretary Clinton being ahead by eight or nine or ten points, and then there were two and a half weeks between the end of the debates and the and the general election. And during that time, Jim Comey did his craziness. We had Russians, you know, putting all kinds of lies on social media. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, and I think Trump actually campaigned reasonably well the final two weeks of the campaign. He really got his act together and functioned as a pretty good candidate in the final two weeks of the campaign. So I think the debates made a huge difference. Uh, but in the end, other things overcame that lead. And, and, you know, she still won by three million votes, but not enough votes in the places you needed to win the Electoral College. So, Ron, I want to um, talk really quickly about a potential similar dynamic to the 92 campaign that may play out in 2020, since we just talked about the 92 campaign, which is the potential of a third party independent candidate running. What are your thoughts on Howard Schultz candidate candidacy or somebody else of that stature who may come in um, and run as an independent? I mean, how, as, as a veteran campaign yeah. staffer, like what are your what are your feelings on that? You know, Adrian, it's funny because this is the least thought about but most consistent aspect of presidential campaigns. We never have a two-person race for president in this country. Never, right. ever, ever. We always have Jill three Stein. or four candidates. Mm-hmm. Back in 2000, the votes that uh, Ralph Nader got were more by a lot more than the difference between Al Gore and George Bush. No, Ralph Nader, Al Gore wins the Electoral College. And in 2016, uh, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, 
took four or five, five points of the vote together. Five points. One in every 20 people voted for either Jill Stein or Gary Johnson. That's not a small number of people. That's larger than many states. So this is always part of our campaigns. We think about it most dramatically in 1992 because Ross Perot did get, uh, you know, like 16, I mean, even 18 percent of the vote. He was a major factor in that election and in a much bigger number. But whether it's Howard Schultz or someone else or the Green Party or whatever, uh, the Democratic nominee for president has to understand he or she is going to face third-party candidates siphoning off votes. That works to Trump's advantage. Why? Because Trump has this core of support that isn't going away. And that means that um, while he, I don't think 50% of Americans will never vote for Donald Trump, 42% 42% of Americans will always vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so as the number, as you put more candidates in the race, the percent you need to win drops, and that works to Trump's advantage. Yeah, mathematically, it, it does work to his advantage. What did Bill Clinton win with in 92? Was it 41%? I think uh, 43, I think, was the winning number. Yep. I, I mean, that's, you know, if, if, if Trump's base is 34, 35-ish percent, his solid core base, it's not going anywhere. That really just means if a third party candidate comes in and performs around the same level that Perot did, that Trump only has to get six or seven points more. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, um, the the third party factor is a big factor. We don't spend a lot of time talk, talking about that or thinking about that in politics. We kind of think of that as like a throw on at the end. But it had a major impact in 2016, had a major impact in 2000. Obviously had a major impact in 1992. I mean, this is, you know, three of the past six presidential races has had a huge impact. I mean, you know, it's something we should spend a lot more time talking and, and thinking about. And do you think somebody like a third-party candidate should be allowed on the debate stage in the general? So there are rules for that. The debate commission has set forth. The rule mm-hmm. is that the candidate has to essentially be at 15% in the polls to get on the debate stage. But do that, you think it should be altered if somebody is, is you know, maybe a, hovering around 10%? You know, I think that's a pretty fair rule. Look, I think that um, – Um, there's always an instinct to let people in and increase the competition. I understand that. But in the end, the general election debates are the last chance the voters have to see the two most likely people to be elected president. Mm -hmm. And it's a scarce resource. There are three 90-minute debates. Every minute that someone else is talking, whether that's a journalist or a third-party candidate, is one less minute that one of those two potential presidents is talking. When they're over, people always go, well, they didn't get to answer about this, or they didn't get to answer about that, and I didn't hear them talk about that. And that problem is exacerbated if you take a third of the time and give it to a third person. So I do think you know the 15% rule served us well, and, and I think that's, that's the rule the commission should adopt for 2020, and I think that's the rule that should be enforced. Ron, you've uh, accomplished a ton in your career and have worked for some exceptional people. Um, I'm curious, what makes a good leader in your mind? I think a good leader um, is someone who sets high standards, who sets clear goals and objectives, and then trusts people to to do that. Holds people accountable for doing that, but has confidence in them. And um, my particular, my most recent experience in the government working with President Obama was a great example of working for a really, really good leader. President Obama always made it clear what he thought the goals were, what the values were, what the objectives were. And then trusted people to to do that. Um, you know, on the Ebola thing is a really good example of that, which is that President Obama said early on uh, after I came in, like, we're going to let the scientists make the scientific decisions. I don't really care about the politics. I don't really care if these decisions are popular or unpopular. I don't care if they're getting me votes or losing me votes. We're going to go with the scientists on the scientific decisions. And 
uh, you know, that sometimes uh, made us do things that people didn't like. It was one reason why we didn't quarantine travelers coming from Africa because the scientists said that was unnecessary and would hurt the response. It's one reason why we had certain policies about where we treated people and how we treated people. And um, but in the end, it made for a more effective response. And um, and President Obama's willingness to stand up in the face of criticism and to say, look, the, these are the principles. We're going to follow these principles. I think is one reason why he was a, was a great president and a great leader. Ron Klain, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks it's for having me. It's been a fantastic you, conversation. I've enjoyed it. And we'll, we'd love to have you on again. I'm always here. Maybe around the debates. You bet. That would be fun, right? Sure, of course. Anytime. First uh, debate. First debate's when? June, I think Alrod. it's June 25th and 26th, right? Or June 26th and 27th. 26th and 27th in Miami. And then the next ones are uh, two nights again in July in Detroit. That's right. And, and interestingly, that I think there's a very, very, very high probability that first debate will be the most watched Democratic primary debate in history. We well, you know Let's hope so. um, in uh, the record before 2016 uh, was there was one eight million viewer debate in 2008. The first debate in 2015 between uh, all five Democratic candidates in Las Vegas in October of 2015 drew 16 million people, double the previous record. Wow. That was only on CNN. This first debate is going to be on NBC, on the network, live in prime Telemundo, time. Telemundo, MSNBC. MSNBC, the whole family of NBC networks. So I think, uh, you know, we should expect a very large audience for those those debates. It's going to be fascinating. And I, I really think it's smart the DNC is doing this on two separate nights, requiring this on two separate nights. And also choosing candidates at random. So there's not going to be a kid's table anymore, yeah. right? Where. Mike Huckabee and Chris Christie so and whoever. It's very embarrassing. Yeah. Carly Fiorina, really embarrassing. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your expertise and for your time today. We really appreciate you joining us. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right, I'm going to make one shameless plug for our new website. Great. www.theelectables.com. We just launched that this past week. So you can catch all the episodes there. Um, Ron, thanks again. And for Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell, and we'll catch you next time.